The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Mr. Bolin, I, I'm sure you still meet the uh, remark that um, what are the Negroes, why aren't they optimistic? Um, they say, but it's getting so much better. There are Negro mayors, there's Negroes in all, all of sports, uh, there are Negroes in, in politics, there are... Um, uh, they're even accorded the ultimate accolade of being in television commercials now. And, um, I'm glad you're smiling. Uh, is it at once getting much better and still hopeless? Well, I don't think there's much hope for it, you know, to tell you the truth. You know, as long as people are using this peculiar language. It's not a question of what happens to the, to the Negro here, or to the black man here. That's a, that's a very vivid question for me, you know. But, it, but the real question is what's going to happen to this country? I have to repeat that. Mm. That's James Baldwin on The Dick Cavett Show. Smiling and polite, but uncompromising as well. Why is the Negro problem, as it was called in those days, always presented to Negroes as if it were their problem? Tell us when it's over, Dick Cavett seems to be saying. We're waiting. And James Baldwin says, you're framing this wrong. It's not a Negro problem. It's a white supremacist problem. It's an American problem. This isn't our problem, our black American problem to solve. It's an American problem to solve. And furthermore, America isn't going to be great when black people figure out how to get better or stop complaining. It's going to be great when white people address the problems they have about black people. That's Baldwin's point. It's a hard one for many white people to hear. Baldwin was as eloquent as anyone, and they didn't always hear him. James Baldwin was born in Harlem in 1924. His family was poor, and his stepfather, who was a preacher, singled James out for punishment. Libraries were his refuge. He showed incredible promise very early, and he had the support of educators who fostered it. He wrote essays and plays. He moved to Paris when he was 24, he became Marlon Brando's roommate back in New York. He became a celebrity, a voice, a respected intellectual, all at a fairly young age. And when he wasn't appearing on talk shows or writing essays or participating in debates or giving lectures for activities he did very, very well, he was writing fiction, which he also did very well. He's one of the best. He was angry. He was an artist, and he fused those two things together in a way very few people have done successfully. It's no wonder he's been chosen again and again by writers who join me for conversations. He's one of their favorites. Why? I think it's his honesty, his artistry, and his fearlessness. Yes, you need to be fearless to be a writer, not just in the sense that your writing might make you enemies, but in the sense that you yourself might need to go to uncomfortable places to dig deep into disquieting areas. Baldwin did that. And in some ways, his fearlessness is inspiring even to those who aren't writing. Let's say to a podcaster. Let's say to a podcaster about literature. Let's say your humble literature podcaster, Jack Wilson. The story we're going to hear today, Going to Meet the Man, was a tough one for me to record. It's going to be tough to hear. It's not for immature ears. It's graphic. It's full of adult themes. You may want to exercise some caution before listening. Not one to have with young children on. <laughs> not one to have on with young children in the room, I should say. 
I'll have more about that and more about our author, the incredible James Baldwin, and his story, Going to Meet the Man, on today's History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson. We're in the middle of a little run here, a three-parter. We began with Baldwin's essay on Faulkner, which sets up the themes today. This is not a program about social issues, not a program about social justice, but it's a program about literature, and sometimes those themes intertwine. I'm not here to debate the issues. You know where I stand. And you can also go elsewhere for more informed and more subtle discussions of issues of race, whether we're talking about current topics or the 1950s, which is the era we're talking about today. What interests me is something different. What interests me is what the authors were using literature for. Baldwin is a political person. He's an activist. He's an advocate. He's a champion of a cause. He fought for that cause. And in his way, Faulkner was too. Faulkner didn't need to write an essay for Life magazine urging the civil rights movement to slow down. He felt obligated to do that. So here we have these two great writers who could have just written essays, especially Baldwin. There was no need for him to turn to fiction. And yet, he did. What was he hoping to get from fiction? What could he convey in fiction that he couldn't just convey with an essay or a speech? What power did fiction have? What special quality could he tap into? I think the answer is pretty clear. Some of them, anyway. There's probably a lot of reasons. A few suggest themselves right away. Fiction tells stories. Fiction lets you invent things. Fiction, as it's developed over the past couple of hundred years, lets you inhabit the mind of someone else. Fiction is maybe the deepest act of empathy possible especially when it's first person, or what we call close third. You, the reader, are in the mind of the character. The author is in that mind first, invents that mind, and so is the reader, or in today's case, the listener. Baldwin went into that mind in today's story, which is about a white southerner. Baldwin inhabited that mind and portrayed what was going on in that mind. And we can learn from it, but we can also test it. Does it feel true to us? How well did Baldwin do it? Does he persuade us? How do we feel about the experience? And then we can look back at a Faulkner. Faulkner's over there too. Faulkner covers a lot of this same territory. How effective is his look at the internal lives of his characters? Does he capture everything? Well, maybe that's impossible. Maybe that's not the right goal. But does he capture enough? Is he giving us a full picture? What are his aims? And how do they differ from Baldwin's? What does Faulkner do well? What does he get right? How does his fiction address us? What do we do with it? What does that say about us? Those are all fascinating questions. Let's hear from some listeners, then dive into our story. It's probably the most intense story we've read here on the History of Literature. Be ready. Mm -hmm. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, first up, an email from Dawn. Subject, Dubliners edition you referred to. So enjoying your podcast. You referred to an edition of the Dubliners. Could you be more specific? Would love to purchase it. Thanks in advance, Dawn. Yes, Dawn, you are in luck. There is a great edition of the Dubliners. It's called the Penguin Classics Deluxe Edition. Got it right here underneath my hand. I mean, Joyce is great no matter how you get him, no matter what the delivery system is for his works. Listeners who have been around for a while will know of my Christmas tradition where I read one Dubliner's story per day, every day leading up to Christmas Eve, when I read the final Dubliner story, The Dead. Hmm. Makes me feel ready for Christmas already, with the snow coming down and the wind at the door and the fireplace crackling, and the presents purchased, and the blanket over my knees, and the mug of hot tea in one hand, and my copy of the Dubliners in the other. And it's this copy now, my new one, with the Dublin crowd walking through the snow, the Centennial Edition. You can actually see it on the History of Podcast logo, if you can take a look at our graphic. It's a bluish cover. See the people walking around Dublin? It's a book worthy of love and lust, which is, <laughs> it's a little extreme, but very joicy and I think. Okay, I'm carried away. Don, thank you for the email. Good luck with the Dubliners. Subject, ranking greatest. Hi, Jack. How about a ranking of the greatest books of the past 100 years? Thanks, Jeff. Well, Jeff, that's a nice idea. Very nice idea. 100 years. A big brown number. So we would start in 1920, which would rule out the Dubliners, but leave in Ulysses, barely, maybe, depending on where we draw the line at the publication. I think we can include it. We'll leave out most of Henry James. Wow. All those works. Over 100 years old already. This would have 
been a very different list if I'd done it in my early 20s. Beloved would still be safe, of course. Gatsby, well, the clock is ticking there, 1925. Five years left. Here's the problem with a list like this, Jeff. I don't like assessing contemporary literature. I'd want to eliminate everything from the past 20 years or so. History needs a little time to settle. In my opinion, great books are hard to see up close all at once. We think they're great. We don't know exactly how long they'll last. Might think differently in a couple of decades. But I will keep your idea in mind, and we'll see. Maybe there will be something there. Thank you for the email. Subject, Loan Agreement Opportunity from Postale Banquet. Hello. We give you long-term online loans ranging from $2,000 to $1 million for month at a monthly rate of 3%. You are interested? Space, 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 question mark. Well, thank you, Postale Banquet. That is an intriguing offer. Google helpfully gives me three options for an answer. They are auto-suggesting my answer for me. First option, yes, I am interested. Second option, yes, I'm interested. Third option, no, I am not interested. Do you hear the difference between the first two? Yes, I am. And yes, I'm. Thank you, Google. Google is leaning toward being interested in the offer. Sounds intriguing to do to Google. To Google. To Google. 66% of Google's suggestions are that I should go ahead and be interested. Pretty good odds. And who wouldn't be interested? This is a loan agreement opportunity from Postale Banquet. But Google is not going far enough. So I write my own response. Dear Postale Banquet, thank you for the offer. I am indeed interested in your long-term online loans at monthly rates. Unfortunately, I could use more than a million dollars a month, frankly. Is that the ceiling? No uh, wiggle room there. I have expenses here at the History of Literature podcast. Server space, interns, sound equipment, website maintenance, books. I'm blowing through $10 million a month, not counting coffee. Can you please send me $10 million a month? If not, buzz off. Love, Jack. Where was that response, Google? Buzz off. Does anyone say that anymore? Buzz off. I love that one. It's underused. Buzz off. Like a fly. Buzz off, fly. Yes, I am interested. No, I am not interested. Buzz off, fly. I'd choose that one every time. I should write for Google. I guess they recruited me once upon a time. Come to think of it, I got two t-shirts out of it. (laughs) What is it? Trillion-dollar company. They gave me two T-shirts. I took one for myself. I took a ladies' shirt for my fiancé. And then I told them to buzz off. (laughs) They should have written it down and used that one in their auto-suggest catalog of responses. It was a freebie. (laughs) Underappreciated, as always. Moving on. Here are a few reviews. 
A great resource. Here's a five-star review. A great resource by a new fan of Italo. The username. I'm a secondary English teacher. Your podcast exposes me to works that I wouldn't normally come across that I can introduce to students when not too scandalous. Mm. Thanks for giving me new ideas. More importantly, I admire your focus on authors from a variety of backgrounds. Literature includes, but isn't limited to dead white men. Please don't go anywhere but up. Yes, well, I hope you enjoy today, James Baldwin. I will indeed go up, hopefully. There's a lot of up still left from where I am. <laughs> Can't really go down any further. I'm still the guy in the ditch with a towel over his head. Still, that's been a while since that guy's come out, but it's still true. Two million downloads later, and somehow, well, okay, enough self-pity. Although sometimes honesty comes across as self-pity. That's part of the curse of being a guy in the ditch with a towel over his head. Okay, thank you, new fan of Idolo. Is that Idolo Svevo, by the way? He's on our list. We'll have a show on him coming up, hopefully soon. A very funny writer. Hector Schmitz was his real name. And Confessions of Zeno, that's another one about to turn 100. 1923, I think that was published. I'd better get cracking, or I'll lose all those books from the 20s. Or I could just bend the rules a bit. Either way. Next review. So great. That's in all caps. Another five-star review. By Hagen Daz's official. Hmm. The guy who hosts this seems like the nicest person. Smiley face. That's the review. Nicest person. That's kind of like a curse, isn't it? Isn't that the why all the moms liked me and none of the girls? The girls liked the mean guys, the jerks, seemed to me. Moms liked me. Grandmas loved me. That was the story of my early years of romance. I wonder if any of those, if those, if those romantic partners of mine are listening. That's how things went. I get a call from a girl out of the blue. Hi, Jack. Do you want to come over? Wow. Of course I do, pretty girl who barely talks to me otherwise. So I roll into the driveway, freshly washed. Maybe I have one of my coolest shirts on. There's mom and grandma in the window, beaming as I walk to the front door. There's the pretty girl, too, smiling in a somewhat more forced way. <laughs> would you like to come inside, Jack Wilson? Sure would. You bet. And in I stroll, and I notice the mom is smiling warmly, but there's a little pain there. Little tension in the air. Something has happened, and it turns out that the girl has gotten into trouble. Maybe she missed curfew the night before. Maybe she stumbled home tipsy. Maybe she was out with a rough crowd. The cool boyfriend with the motorcycle and the wild hair. Maybe she had some fence mending to do today. Maybe mom said, Why can't you ever just hang around a nice boy like Jack Wilson? And Jack got the call. Pretty girl did not want me there. Mom knew this wasn't going to end all that well. She was having some regrets about putting this in place. She felt sorry for me <laughs> walking into this lion's den. And Grandma was practically stitching my name into the family tree that she was embroidering. So I hang out with Grandma for a while. 
Pretty girl disappears. Mom chases after her. I pretend I can't hear them shouting at each other in the back room. As Grandma and I sip some cocoa. Until finally I get up and put them all out of their misery. That's what it's like being a nice guy. You finish last. It's absolutely true. And I know what you're thinking. Well, that was high school, right, Jack Wilson? Aren't you married now? Didn't the nice guy find a woman who realized that nice guys are better in the long run? No. No, I didn't. Not at all. <laughs> Jack found a woman who hates nice guys. She's just kind of a masochist, I think. <laughs> Punishing herself with this nice guy. The nice guy part was not all that appealing to her. Happy boy, she used to say. Her lips curdled with contempt. Happy boy. Oh, God, here comes happy boy. <laughs> as soon as I'd get on a roll, as soon as I'd really get going, I'd get the eye roll, the disdain, the disgust. Oh, happy boy is back. Oh, no. Ha-ha, <laughs> indeed he is. And guess what happened to us? The two of us, I'm really letting you behind the curtain now. We had a baby, a beautiful baby boy. And he was just like me. He was just like me. Just as happy. Just as nice. Just as logical. Just as reasonable. He was like my clone. And for Mrs. Jack Wilson, what a dilemma. She hated Happy Boy. But she loved her little baby. Loved him to pieces. And so she had to love his Happy Boy side too. His logical side. She had to confess that there was something appealing about it, something she needed to protect, something she could even admire a little. It was great. It was great. But the sting is still there, the sting of rejection, of losing to all those rebels, the dudes with a streak of danger, the bad boys, the rogues and cads. So, there you have it, reviewer. You've inspired me. Maybe I need to change. Maybe this nice guy is finished with finishing last. Hear me? Thank you for the review, haagen official. And buzz off. You go buzz off. I am so sorry. <laughs> My apologies. My apologies, haagen official. You didn't deserve that. My niceness, like my guilt and my fear, are too deeply ingrained. My apologies to you. Please don't buzz off. Please come back here with your gentle wings and sit quietly at my table. There's room for you here, my buzzy little friend. Next up, a fanboy to this fanboy of literature. Five stars. Brian with a yo. I may lack the critical distance of some of the negative reviewers of this podcast, but for me... It is rare to find a love of literature that lacks ex that sorry that Jack exhibits on each episode of his podcast. Not only is his enthusiasm refreshing, but this podcast blends the right mix of critical analysis, informative facts about the authors and works, and the humor and personality of Jack and his guests. What nice things to say. To those who are turned off by reflections on current social issues, politics, and personal lives of the podcasters, I say... It is the poor reader who doesn't allow great works of art to color their vision of the world. They experience both publicly and privately. I applaud the courage of the host and his guests for expressing their rumination on these works in an open and honest way. Wow. 
What a nice review. Thank you, Brian, with a yo. Beautifully put. We'll put that one to the test today. Baldwin goes deep. Baldwin really, he kind of makes other literature look childish, childlike in a way. He says, here we are at the grown-ups table. There's a little card table down there for you. If you can't get this good, if you can't go this deep, if you can't be this aggressive about the world and the people in it, this open, this honest, it's a challenge to write a story like this or to read it. Calls forth all our powers, whether we agree or disagree, whether we feel moved, not persuaded, however you feel about it. It's a story that's going to challenge you. Wish I could take some credit for getting this mix right that Brian with a yo so flatteringly puts together the way he expresses it. Wish I could take some credit for doing that, but the truth is I don't really think about the mix. Just trying to read and analyze and share. I'm like the guy who's been thrown into the deep end of the pool pumping my arms and legs to try to make it out. And then sometimes I do get out and I hear a nice review like this one and I smile. And before I know it, I've stumbled into the ditch and there's a towel over my head. Ah, well. Next up, Collins Pa. A window seat on the Literature Express by Collins Pa. Five stars. I have been listening for more than two years now. I can't believe it has been this long before writing a review. This series of podcasts has brought me immeasurable joy, understanding, and perspective. Jack has introduced me to authors I would not have sampled and themes I would have avoided. I have grown as a reader by listening. His colorful personal insights make each episode more like a discussion with your friend than a dry lecture audit. When there have been longer stretches between episodes, I found myself longing for the next, worried the series would end. Please keep them coming, Jack. There is so much more to be learned. Were this Reddit, I would vote up Brian with a Yo's comment 20 times. <laughs> Thank you, Collins Pa. little boost of confidence for Brian with a Yo. This is kind of nice, this community looking out for each other. Okay, two more emails and then... Straight to Baldwin. That's a quote. I can't resist telling you this story. It's a quote from my son when he was little. My younger son. He was getting tired, nodding off. We were finishing lunch, but he was too tired even for his dessert. We had a cheesecake, but he was too tired to make it. He couldn't stay up that long. So we said, let's save dessert. We'll wait until after dinner instead. He was He was really little. This was the era when he took afternoon naps, but my older son didn't. My older son had graduated from the nap, so while the little one slept, the older one and I would do something subversive, like go for a walk or go to the grocery store or watch TV or something. My little one was nodding off in his high chair, and the older one started talking about what we were going to do with our nap time bonus, just the two of us. Maybe we'd go play ball or something. And I was eyeing the little one, worried that he might get upset about not being included in this fun activity, which could ruin the nap. If he got too angry about it, decided he was going to miss out, wanted to stay up and said instead, but nope. He just 
opened his eyes a little bit more and said, I'm going to go take a nap, and when I get up, I'm going straight to cheesecake. I feel like that with books. I'll be doing the dishes and thinking, finish these damn dishes, turn out the lights, go upstairs, brush my teeth, put on my pajamas, and then straight to Boswell. <laughs> so that's us today. Two more emails and then straight to Baldwin. Sally from Kent. Dear Jack, I've just discovered your podcast and I'm excited to have so many episodes to fill my furloughed days in lockdown. It seems that for so long I have been looking for a friendly voice. Friendly voice. There it is again. Be careful, Sally. I've been known to tell people to buzz off. I'm sorry. I have been looking for a friendly voice to fulfill my obsession with literature and also fill the long commute between work and home. Now that I am obliged to stay at home, your dulcet tones are even more welcome. In the past, I've spent some years in the U.S., and in particular, Wausau, Wisconsin. Oh, Wausau! All right, now we're talking. Wausau, Wisconsin, and have a foam cheese head tucked away somewhere. Actually, I may as well fess up. This is Sally. Poor Sally from Kent. She's got to make a confession here. Actually, she says, I may as well fess up. I am also the proud owner of a cheese bra to be worn over a ski jacket when it is 40 below in Lambeau Field. <laughs> exclamation mark. Indeed, an exclamation mark. A cheese bra? I don't even know. <laughs> Thank you for being honest. Here we are. That's what we're here for. Confession time. Tell us your worst. A cheese bra. Oh, that is so Wisconsin. I miss home sometimes. Keep up the good work, says Sally, and may I also suggest an episode on Cormac McCarthy? While in lockdown, I have just reread his Border Trilogy. In my humble opinion, The Crossing is a work of genius. I am partial to a Western, and McCarthy is the master. With kindest regards, Sally in Kent, UK. Sally, wow. In the UK, a place I like very much, and having spent some time in Wausau and at Lambeau Field, which is practically sacred ground in my warped little world, and a cheese bra on top of it. Thank you, Sally. This one email made me laugh out loud. Don't buzz off, Sally. Stay right here. We're very glad to have you listening. Last email is from Connie. Subject the history of literature. It's intimidating to write to you since I've heard what others have shared with such eloquence and originality. But here I go, being incredibly brave and writing to you to share my appreciation. Oh, Connie, you're right. The emails I get are amazing. I kind of can't believe it. My listeners could not be better. I love them. I'm always so impressed. They could do the show. I could turn the show over to the listeners, but I'm here listening, Connie. I'm listening to you. No need to be intimidated. I like hearing from everyone. Connie goes on. Discovering the history of literature this year has given me so many hours of bliss. I'm an avid reader, and I feel a kinship when you're talking about books I've read, always learning more about them and their authors. And then, when you introduce me to a writer I have not read, there is the excitement of discovery. But I think most of all, I just feel nourished when I listen. 
I am grateful to have discovered the history of literature, and I am happy to support your work by becoming a member of the History of Literature Patreon community. Parentheses. Sorry it took me so long. Connie. Well, Connie, this is a beautiful email and a beautiful thought, and I think you are a beautiful person, like all of my beautiful listeners. I'm very grateful to you for joining our Patreon community over there at patreon.com slash literature. Like new Patreon patrons, Patreons, Shatan and Andrew and Hannah and Sally. Maybe that was Sally in the UK. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Many, many thanks. I can honestly say you have restored my sense of hope and my sense of wonder. I'm very grateful to all of you. And I'm glad to hear that I have been doing my part to help you stay afloat. Now, let's dig in. This story, by the way, I'm not sure if I've warned you enough. I guess I have. It's shocking. It's graphic. There are very difficult things to hear in it. It's violent. It has disturbing imagery. It has darkness. It's James Baldwin, the incredible James Baldwin. A flashing intelligence, a quicksilver mind, drawing upon the tools of fiction to create the inner world of a white Southern man, a racist. He draws upon the history and the culture and the attitudes. And he, well, you might be thinking, well, how does James Baldwin know? How does he know what's in the hearts and minds of a white man, a Southerner? And I, of course, I think he would say that in a way he doesn't. He doesn't know for sure. We don't ask artists to know. We ask artists to present. We say that men can write about women characters and vice versa. Why not? Artists, that's what artists do. We can decide for ourselves if there's truth in it. And Baldwin might make another argument, too. There's a famous clip where he's talking to a philosopher. He's debating him, also on the Dick Cavett show. And he has a beautiful little three minutes or so where Baldwin gets on a roll and he says something like, I don't know what's in the minds of people, but I can see what their institutions are. I don't know if people on juries hate me, but I can see how they vote. I don't know if Christians are racist, but I can see that there are white churches and black churches. I don't know if a real estate agent is racist, but I can see when the real estate industry keeps me in the ghetto. He goes on. I think that's what he's saying here, too. We can give an individual a pass. Fine. You say you're not racist. Great. I'll accept that. But somebody must be, or we wouldn't have lynchings. We wouldn't have lynchings, which people go to like it's some goddamn picnic. And he says, what kind of world is this where people insist they're not racist and then they'll attend a lynching like, like it's a picnic? What is running through their mind? It's not a normal thing. It's deeply rooted. It's deeply, deeply rooted. It's not everyone, but there's a crowd, a crowd that is living in this. And it's more than just idle hypocrisy. There's something deeper here at work, some psychological pull, some stirring, some tug, a force that runs through people's minds and bodies. It's a force that's compelling them to do it, even though they know it's wrong, even though they know it's criticized from without. It's elemental. It's appealing in this elemental way. Appealing to what? It's not just hatred. It's not just hatred or a misguided sense of justice. 
It's tied up with love, too, with the feeling of love and being loved, of being part of a family. When hate is also part of your feelings of loyalty and pride and kinship and home and nostalgia, that's a powerful cocktail. And Baldwin is saying, here, look at this. Stop pretending this isn't out there. Here's my artist's view of what's going on. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? You tell me where I'm wrong. Tell me this isn't happening. Tell me this isn't real. Tell me what else explains it. Because guess what, America? If you don't come to grips with this, it's going to be a drag on you until you do. That's what Baldwin's saying. There's no rising above this if you don't recognize and deal with these deep, dark emotions. This weird giddiness that comes out in the middle of the worst atrocities. Where does this come from and what does it mean, America? Where does this come from and what are you, what are we going to do? What is it? Baldwin says, I see the lynchings. I see the people there. I hear them talk when they think no one can hear or when they get a little drunk. Like Faulkner in his interview where he confessed he would shoot black people in the streets if it came to that. Baldwin says he's one of the good guys, quote-unquote. He's one of the heroes. He gets it, and that's still in him. And here's my version, says Baldwin, of a police officer, of a man who... Well, this is an astonishing story. It's as fresh and stark as anything you'll read today. Baldwin is unflinching. Baldwin says, hey, I see the lynchings. You tell me if there are people like this. And you tell me what it means. You tell me who we are. Who we really are. You tell me what we're going to do. It's a story we read. And it's a story that reads us. James Baldwin's going to meet the man. After this. Well, my health that's ain't at all. Yeah, so I'm going down slow. Please write my mother. James Baldwin. What's the matter? She asked. I don't know, he said, trying to laugh. I guess I'm tired. You've been working too hard, she said. I keep telling you. Well, goddammit, woman, he said. It's not my fault. He tried again. He wretchedly failed again. Then he just lay there, silent, angry, and helpless. Excitement filled him like a toothache, but it refused to enter his flesh. He stroked her breast. This was his wife. He could not ask her to do just a little thing for him, just to help him out, just for a little while, the way he could ask a nigger girl to do it. He lay there, and he sighed. The image of a black girl caused a distant excitement in him, like a faraway light. But again, the excitement was more like pain. Instead of forcing him to act, it made action impossible. Go to sleep. She said gently, you've got a hard day tomorrow. 
Yeah, he said, and rolled over on his side, facing her, one hand still on one breast. God damn the niggers, the black stinking coons. You'd think they'd learn. Wouldn't you think they'd learn? I mean, wouldn't you? They going to be out there tomorrow, she said, and took his hand away. Get some sleep. He lay there, one hand between his legs, staring at the frail sanctuary of his wife. A faint light came from the shutters. The moon was full. Two dogs, far away, were barking at each other, back and forth, insistently, as though they were agreeing to make an appointment. He heard a car coming north on the road, and he half sat up, his hand reaching for his holster, which was on a chair near the bed, on top of his pants. The lights hit the shutters and seemed to travel across the room, and then went out. The sound of the car slipped away. He heard it hit gravel, then heard it no more. Some liver-lipped students probably heading back to that college. But coming from where? His watch said it was two in the morning. It could be coming from anywhere, from out of state most likely, and they would be at the courthouse tomorrow. The niggers were getting ready. Well, they would be ready too. He moaned. He wanted to let whatever was in him out, but it wouldn't come out. God damn, he said aloud, and turned again on his side, away from Grace, staring at the shutters. He was a big, healthy man, and he had never had any trouble sleeping. And he wasn't old enough yet to have any trouble getting it up. He was only forty-two. And he was a good man, a God-fearing man. He had tried to do his duty all his life. And he had been a deputy sheriff for several years. Nothing had ever bothered him before. Certainly not getting it up. Sometimes, sure, like any other man, he knew that he wanted a little more spice than Grace could give him. And he would drive over yonder and pick up a black piece or arrest her. It came to the same thing. But he couldn't do that now. No more. There was no telling what might happen once your ass was in the air, and they were low enough to kill a man then, too. Every one of them. Or the girl herself might do it, right while she was making believe you made her feel so good. The niggers. What had the good Lord Almighty had in mind when he made the niggers? Well, they were pretty good at that, all right. Damn. Damn. God damn. This wasn't helping him to sleep. He turned again toward Grace again and moved close to her warm body. He felt something he had never felt before. He felt that he would like to hold her. Hold her, hold her, and he buried in her like a child and never have to get up in the morning again and go downtown to face those faces. Good Christ, they were ugly. And never have to enter that jailhouse again and smell that smell and hear that singing. Never again feel that filthy, kinky, greasy hair under his hand. Never again watch those black breasts leap against the leaping cattle prod. Never hear those moans again, or watch that blood run down, or the fat lips split, or the sealed eyes struggle open. They were animals. They were no better than animals. What could be done with people like that? Here they had been in a civilized country for years, and they still lived like animals. Their houses were dark, with oilcloth or cardboard in the windows. The smell was enough to make you puke your guts out. And there they sat, a whole tribe, pumping out kids. It looked like every damn five minutes. And laughing and talking and playing music like they didn't have a care in the world. And he reckoned they didn't, neither. And coming to the door, into the sunlight, just standing there, just looking foolish, 
not thinking of anything but just getting back to what they were doing, saying, Yes, sir, Mr. Jesse, I surely will, Mr. Jesse. Fine weather, Mr. Jesse. Why, I thank you, Mr. Jesse. He had worked for a mail-order house for a while, and it had been his job to collect the payments for the stuff they bought. They were too dumb to know that they were being cheated blind, but that was no skin off his ass. He was just supposed to do his job. They would be late. They didn't have the sense to put money aside, but it was easy to scare them, and he never really had any trouble. Hell, they all liked him. The kids used to smile when he came to the door. He gave them candy sometimes, or chewing gum, and rubbed their rough bullet heads. Maybe the candy should have been poisoned. Those kids were grown now. He had had trouble with one of them today. There was this nigger today, he said, and stopped. His voice sounded peculiar. He touched Grace. You awake? He asked. She mumbled something, impatiently. She was probably telling him to go to sleep. It was all right. He knew that he was not alone. What a funny time, he said, to be thinking about a thing like that. You listening? She mumbled something again. He rolled over on his back. This nigger's one of the ringleaders. We had trouble with him before. We must have had him out there at the work farm three or four times. Well, Big Jim C. and some of the boys really had to whip that nigger's ass today. He looked over at Grace. He could not tell whether she was listening or not, and he was afraid to ask again. They had this line, you know, to register. He laughed, but she did not. And they wouldn't stay where Big Jim C. wanted them. Nope, they had to start blocking traffic all around the courthouse, so couldn't nothing or nobody get through. And Big Jim C. told them to disperse, and they wouldn't move. They just kept up that singing, and Big Jim C. figured that the others would move if this nigger would move, him being the ringleader. But he wouldn't move, and he wouldn't let the others move, so they had to beat him and a couple of the others, and they threw them in the wagon. But I didn't see this nigger till I got to the jail. They were still singing, and I was supposed to make them stop. Well, I couldn't make them stop for me, but I knew he could make them stop. He was lying on the ground, jerking and moaning. They had threw him in a cell by himself, and blood was coming out of his ears from where Big Jim C. and his boys had whipped him. Wouldn't you think they'd learn? I put the prod to him, and he jerked some more, and he kind of screamed, but he didn't have much voice left. You make them stop that singing, I said to him. You hear me? You make them stop that singing. He acted like he didn't hear me, and I put it to him again under his arms, and he just rolled around on the floor, and blood started coming from his mouth. He'd pissed his pants already. He paused. His mouth felt dry and his throat was as rough as sandpaper as he talked. He began to hurt all over with that peculiar excitement, which refused to be released. You all are going to stop your singing, I said to him, and you are going to stop coming down to the courthouse and disrupting traffic and molesting the people and keeping us from our duties and keeping doctors from getting to sick white women and getting all them northerners in this town to give our town a bad name. As he said this, he kept prodding the boy, sweat pouring from beneath the helmet he had not yet taken off. The boy rolled around in his own dirt and water and blood and tried to scream again as the prod hit his testicles, but the scream did not come out, only a kind of rattle and a moan. He stopped. He was not supposed to kill the nigger. The cell was filled with a terrible odor. The boy was still. You hear me? He called. You had enough? The singing went on. You had enough? His foot leapt out, he had not known it was going to, and caught the boy flush on the jaw. Jesus, he thought, this ain't no nigger, this is a goddamn bull. 
And he screamed again, You had enough? You going to make them stop that singing now? But the boy was out, and now he was shaking worse than the boy had been shaking. He was glad no one could see him. At the same time, he felt very close to a very peculiar, particular joy. Something deep in him and deep in his memory was stirred, but whatever was in his memory eluded him. He took off his helmet. He walked to the cell door. White man, said the boy from the floor behind him. He stopped. For some reason, he grabbed his privates. You remember old Julia? The boy said from the floor with his mouth full of blood and one eye, barely open, glaring like the eye of a cat in the dark. My grandmother's name was Mrs. Julia Blossom. Mrs. Julia Blossom. You're going to call our women by their right names yet. And those kids ain't going to stop singing. We're going to keep on singing until every one of you miserable white mothers go stark raving out of your minds. Then he closed one eye. He spat blood. His head fell back against the floor. He looked down at the boy, whom he had been seeing off and on for more than a year, and suddenly remembered him. Old Julia had been one of his mail-order customers, a nice old woman. He had not seen her for years. He supposed that she must be dead. He had walked into the yard. The boy had been sitting in a swing. He had smiled at the boy and asked, Old Julia home? The boy looked at him for a long time before he answered, Don't know old Julia live here. This is her house. I know her. She's lived here for years. The boy shook his head. You might know a old Julia someplace else, white man, but don't nobody by that name live here. He watched the boy. The boy watched him. The boy certainly wasn't more than ten. White man. He didn't have time to be fooling around with some crazy kid. He yelled, Hey, old Julia! But only silence answered him. The expression on the boy's face did not change. The sun beat down on them both, still and silent. He had the feeling that he had been caught up in a nightmare. A nightmare dreamed by a child. Perhaps one of the nightmares he himself had dreamed as a child. It had that feeling. Everything familiar, without undergoing any other change, had been subtly and hideously displaced. The trees, the sun, the patches of grass in the yard, the leaning porch and the weary porch steps, and the cardboard in the windows and the black hole of the door, which looked like the entrance to a cave, and the eyes of the piccaninny. All, all were charged with malevolence. White man. He looked at the boy. She's gone out? The boy said nothing. Well, he said, tell her I passed by, and I'll pass by next week. He started to go. He stopped. You want some chewing gum? The boy got down from the swing and started for the house. He said, I don't want nothing you got, white man. He walked into the house and closed the door behind him. Now the boy looked as though he were dead. Jesse wanted to go over to him and pick him up and pistol whip him until the boy's head burst open like a melon. He began to tremble with what he believed was rage. Sweat, both cold and hot, raced down his body. The singing filled him as though it were a weird uncontrollable, monstrous howling rumbling up from the depths of his own belly. He felt an icy fear rise in him and raise him up, and he shouted, he howled, You lucky we pump some white blood into you every once in a while, you're women. Here's what I got for all the black bitches in the world. Then he was, abruptly, almost too weak to stand. To his bewilderment, 
His horror, beneath his own fingers, he felt himself violently stiffen, with no warning at all. He dropped his hands, and he stared at the boy, and he left the cell. All that singing they do, he said, all that singing. He could not remember the first time he had heard it. He had been hearing it all his life. It was the sound with which he was most familiar, though it was also the sound of which he had been least conscious, and it had always contained an obscure comfort. They were singing to God. They were singing for mercy, and they hoped to go to heaven, and he had even sometimes felt, when looking into the eyes of some of the old women, a few of the very old men, that they were singing for mercy for his soul too. Of course, he had never thought of their heaven or of what God was or could be for them. God was the same for everyone, he supposed, and heaven was where good people went, he supposed. He had never thought much about what it meant to be a good person. He tried to be a good person and treat everybody right. It wasn't his fault if the niggers had taken it into their heads to fight against God and go against the rules laid down in the Bible for everyone to read. Any preacher would tell you that. He was only doing his duty, protecting white people from the niggers and the niggers from themselves. And there were still lots of good niggers around. He had to remember that. They weren't all like that boy this afternoon. And the good niggers must be mighty sad to see what was happening to their own people. They would thank him when this was over, in the way that they had the best of them, not quite looking him in the eye, in a low voice, with a little smile. We surely thanks you, Mr. Jesse. From the bottom of our hearts, we thanks you. He smiled. They hadn't all gone crazy. This trouble would pass. He knew that the young people had changed some of the words to the songs. He had scarcely listened to the words before, and he did not listen to them now, but he knew that the words were different. He could hear that much. He did not know if the faces were different. He had never, before this trouble began, watched them as they sang, but he certainly did not like what he saw now. They hated him, and this hatred was blacker than their hearts, blacker than their skins, redder than their blood, and harder, by far, than his club. Each day, each night, he felt worn out, aching, with their smell in his nostrils and filling his lungs, as though he were drowning, drowning in niggers. And it was all to be done again when he awoke. It would never end. It would never end. Perhaps this was what the singing had meant all along. They had not been singing black folks into heaven. They had been singing white folks into hell. Everyone felt this black suspicion in many ways but no one knew how to express it. Men much older than he, who had been responsible for law and order much longer than he, were now much quieter than they had been, and the tone of their jokes, in a way that he could not quite put his finger on, had changed. These men were his models. They had been friends to his father, and they had taught him what it meant to be a man. He looked to them for courage now. It wasn't that he didn't know that what he was doing was right. He knew that. Nobody had to tell him that. It was only that he missed the ease of former years. But they didn't have much time to hang out with each other these days. They tended to stay close to their families every free minute because nobody knew what might happen next. Explosions rocked the night of their tranquil town. Each time, each man wondered silently if perhaps this time the dynamite had not fallen into the wrong hands. They thought that they knew where all the guns were, but they could not possibly know every move that was made in that secret place where the darkies lived. From time to time, it was suggested that they form a posse and search the home of every nigger. But they hadn't done it yet. 
For one thing, this might have brought the bastards from the north down on their backs. For another, although the niggers were scattered throughout the town, down in the hollow near the railroad tracks, way west near the mills, up on the hill, the well-off ones, and some out near the college, nothing seemed to happen in one part of town without the niggers immediately knowing it in the other. This meant that they could not take them by surprise. They rarely mentioned it, but they knew that some of the niggers had guns. It stood to reason, as they said, since, after all, some of them had been in the army. There were niggers in the army right now, and God knows they wouldn't have had any trouble stealing this half-assed government blind. The whole world was doing it. Look at the European countries and all those countries in Africa. They made jokes about it, bitter jokes, and they cursed the government in Washington, which had betrayed them, but they had not yet formed a posse. Now, if their town had been laid out, like some towns in the north, where all the niggers lived together in one locality, they could have gone down and set fire to the houses and brought about peace that way. If the niggers had all lived in one place, they could have kept the fire in one place. But the way this town was laid out, the fire could hardly be controlled. It would spread all over town, and the niggers would probably be helping it to spread. Still, from time to time, they spoke of doing it anyway, so that now there was a real fear among them that somebody might go crazy and light the match. They rarely mentioned anything not directly related to the war that they were fighting, but this had failed to establish between them the unspoken communication of soldiers during a war. Each man, in the thrilling silence which sped outward from their exchanges, their laughter, and their anecdotes, seemed wrestling in various degrees of darkness with a secret which he could not articulate to himself, and which, however directly it related to the war, related yet more surely to his privacy and his past. They could no longer be sure, after all, that they had all done the same things. They had never dreamed that their privacy could contain any element of terror, could threaten, that is, to reveal itself to the scrutiny of the judgment day, while remaining unreadable and inaccessible to themselves, nor had they dreamed that the past, while certainly refusing to be forgotten, could yet so stubbornly refuse to be remembered." They felt themselves mysteriously set at naught, as no longer entering into the real concerns of other people, while here they were, outnumbered, fighting to save the civilized world. They had thought that people would care. People didn't care, not enough anyway, to help them. It would have been a help, really, or at least a relief, even to have been forced to surrender. Thus they had lost, probably forever, their old and easy connection with each other. They were forced to depend on each other more, and, at the same time, to trust each other less. Who could tell when one of them might not betray them all, for money, or for the ease of confession? But no one dared imagine what there might be to confess. They were soldiers fighting a war, but their relationship to each other was that of accomplices in a crime. They all had to keep their mouths shut. I stepped in the river at Jordan. Out of the darkness of the room, out of nowhere, the line came flying up at him with the melody and the beat. He turned wordlessly toward his sleeping wife. I stepped in the river at Jordan. Where had he heard that song? Grace, he whispered. You awake? She did not answer. If she was awake, she wanted him to sleep. Her breathing was slow and easy. Her body slowly rose and fell. I stepped in the river at Jordan. The water came to my knees. He began to sweat. He felt an overwhelming fear, which yet contained a curious and dreadful pleasure. I stepped in the river at Jordan. The water came to my waist. 
It had been night as it was now. He was in the car between his mother and his father, sleepy, his head in his mother's lap, sleepy and yet full of excitement. The singing came from far away across the dark fields. There were no lights anywhere. They had said goodbye to all the others and turned off on this dark dirt road. They were almost home. I stepped in the river at Jordan. The water came over my head. I looked way over to the other side. He was making up my dying bed. I guess they singing for him, his father said, seeming very weary and subdued now. Even when they're sad, they sound like they just about to go and tear off a piece. He yawned and leaned across the boy and slapped his wife lightly on the shoulder, allowing his hand to rest there for a moment. Don't they? Don't talk that way, she said. Well, that's what we're going to do, he said. You can make up your mind to that. He started whistling. You see, when I begin to feel it, I gets kind of musical too. Oh, Lord, come on and ease my troubling mind. He had a black friend, his age, eight, who lived nearby. His name was Otis. They wrestled together in the dirt. Now the thought of Otis made him sick. He began to shiver. His mother put her arm around him. He's tired, she said. We'll be home soon, said his father. He began to whistle again. We didn't see Otis this morning, Jesse said. He did not know why he said this. His voice in the darkness of the car sounded small and accusing. You haven't seen Otis for a couple of mornings, his mother said. That was true, but he was only concerned about this morning. No, said his father. I reckon Otis's folks was afraid to let him show himself this morning. But Otis didn't do nothing. Now his voice sounded questioning. Otis can't do nothing, said his father. He's too little. The car lights picked up their wooden house, which now solemnly approached them, the lights falling around it like yellow dust. Their dog, chained to a tree, began to bark. We just want to make sure Otis don't do nothing, said his father, and stopped the car. He looked down at Jesse. And you tell him what your daddy said, you hear? Yes, sir, he said. His father switched off the lights. The dog moaned and pranced, but they ignored him and went inside. He could not sleep. He lay awake, hearing the night sounds, the dog yawning and moaning outside, the sawing of the crickets, the cry of the owl, dogs barking far away, then no sounds at all, just the heavy, endless buzzing of the night. The darkness pressed on his eyelids like a scratchy blanket. He turned, he turned again. He wanted to call his mother, but he knew his father would not like this. He was terribly afraid. Then he heard his father's voice in the other room, low, with a joke in it, but this did not help him. It frightened him more. He knew what was going to happen. He put his head under the blanket, then pushed his head out again, for fear, staring at the dark window. He heard his mother's moan, his father's sigh. He gritted his teeth. Then their bed began to rock. His father's breathing seemed to fill the world. That morning, before the sun had gathered all its strength, men and women, some flushed and some pale with excitement, came with news. Jesse's father seemed to know what the news was before the first jalopy stopped in the yard, and he ran out crying, They got him then? They got him? The first jalopy held eight people, three men and two women and three children. The children were sitting on the laps of the grown-ups. Jesse knew two of them, the two boys. They shyly and uncomfortably greeted each other. He did not know the girl. Yes, they got him, said one of the women. 
the older one, who wore a wide hat and a fancy faded blue dress. They found him early this morning. How far had he got? Jesse's father asked. He hadn't got no further than Harkness, one of the men said. Looked like he got lost up there in all them trees. Or maybe he just got so scared he couldn't move. They all laughed. Yes, and you know, it's near a graveyard, too, said the younger woman, and they laughed again. Is that where they got him now? asked Jesse's father. By this time, there were three cars piled behind the first one, with everyone looking excited and shining, and Jesse noticed that they were carrying food. It was like a Fourth of July picnic. Yeah, that's where he is, said one of the men. Declare, Jesse, you going to keep us here all day long, answering your damn fool questions? Come on. We ain't got no time to waste. Don't bother putting up no food, cried a woman from one of the other cars. We got enough. Just come on. Why, thank you, said Jesse's father. We be right along then. I better get a sweater for the boy, said his mother, in case it turns cold. Jesse watched his mother's thin legs cross the yard. He knew that she also wanted to comb her hair a little and maybe put on a better dress, the dress she wore to church. His father guessed this, too, for he yelled behind her, Now don't you go trying to turn yourself into no movie star. You just come on. But he laughed as he said this and winked at the men. His wife was younger and prettier than most of the other women. He clapped Jesse on the head and started pulling him toward the car. You all go on, he said. I'll be right behind you. Jesse, you go tie up that there dog while I get this car started. The cars sputtered and coughed and shook. The caravan began to move. Bright dust filled the air. As soon as he was tied up, the dog began to bark. Jesse's mother came out of the house, carrying a jacket for his father and a sweater for Jesse. She had put a ribbon in her hair and had an old shawl around her shoulders. Put these in the car, son, she said, and handed everything to him. She bent down and stroked the dog, looked to see if there was water in his bowl, then went back up the three porch steps and closed the door. Come on, said his father. Ain't nothing in there for nobody to steal. He was sitting in the car, which trembled and belched. The last car of the caravan had disappeared, but the sound of singing floated behind them. Jesse got into the car, sitting close to his father, loving the smell of the car and the trembling and the bright day and the sense of going on a great and unexpected journey. His mother got in and closed the door, and the car began to move. Not until then did he ask, Where are we going? Are we going on a picnic? He had a feeling that he knew where they were going, but he was not sure. That's right, his father said. We're going on a picnic. You won't ever forget this picnic. Are we, he asked after a moment, going to see the bad nigger, the one that knocked down old Miss Standish? Well, I reckon, said his mother, that we might see him. He started to ask, Will a lot of niggers be there? Will Otis be there? But he did not ask his question, to which, in a strange and uncomfortable way, he already knew the answer. Their friends in the other cars stretched up the road as far as he could see. Other cars had joined them. There were cars behind them. They were singing. The sun seemed suddenly very hot, and he was at once very happy and a little afraid. He did not quite understand what was happening, and he did not know what to ask. He had no one to ask. He had grown accustomed, for the solution of such mysteries, to go to Otis. He felt that Otis knew everything, but he could not ask Otis about this. 
Anyway, he had not seen Otis for two days. He had not seen a black face anywhere for more than two days. And he now realized, as they began chugging up the long hill, which eventually led to Harkness, that there were no black faces on the road this morning. No black people anywhere. From the houses in which they lived all along the road, no smoke curled, no life stirred. Maybe one or two chickens were to be seen. That was all. There was no one at the windows, no one in the yard, no one sitting on the porches, and the doors were closed. He had come this road many a time and seen women washing in the yard. There were no clothes on the clotheslines. Men working in the fields, children playing in the dust. Black men passed them on the road other mornings, other days, on foot or in wagons, sometimes in cars, tipping their hats, smiling, joking, their teeth a solid white against their skin, their eyes as warm as the sun, the blackness of their skin like dull fire against the white of the blue or the gray of their torn clothes. They passed the nigger church, dead white, desolate, locked up, in the graveyard, where no one knelt or walked, and he saw no flowers. He wanted to ask, where are they? Where are they all? But he did not dare. As the hill grew steeper, the sun grew colder. He looked at his mother and his father. They looked straight ahead, seeming to be listening to the singing, which echoed and echoed in this graveyard silence. They were strangers to him now. They were looking at something he could not see. His father's lips had a strange, cruel curve. He wet his lips from time to time and swallowed he was terribly aware of his father's tongue. It was as though he had never seen it before. And his father's body suddenly seemed immense, bigger than a mountain. His eyes, which were gray-green, looked yellow in the sunlight, or at least there was light in them, which he had never seen before. His mother patted her hair and adjusted the ribbon, leaning forward to look into the car mirror. You look all right, said his father and laughed. When that nigger looks at you, he's going to swear he throwed his life away for nothing. Wouldn't be surprised if he don't come back to haunt you. And he laughed again. The singing now slowly began to cease, and he realized that they were nearing their destination. They had reached a straight, narrow, pebbly road with trees on either side. The sunlight filtered down on them from a great height, as though they were underwater, and the branches of the trees scraped against the cars with a tearing sound. To the right of them, and beneath them, invisible now, lay the town, and to the left, miles of trees which led to the high mountain range which his ancestors had crossed in order to settle in this valley. Now all was silent, except for the bumping of the tires against the rocky road, the sputtering of motors, and the sound of a crying child, and they seemed to move more slowly. They were beginning to climb again. He watched the cars ahead as they toiled patiently upward, disappearing into the sunlight of the clearing. Presently, he felt their vehicle also rise, heard his father's changed breathing, the sunlight hit his face, the trees moved away from them, and they were there. As their car crossed the clearing, he looked around. There seemed to be millions. There were certainly hundreds of people in the clearing, staring towards something he could not see. There was a fire. He could not see the flames, but he smelled the smoke. Then they were on the other side of the clearing, among the trees again. His father drove off the road and parked the car behind a great many other cars. He looked down at Jesse. You all right? He asked. Yes, sir, he said. Well, come on then, his father said. He reached over and opened the door on his mother's side. His mother stepped out first. 
They followed her into the clearing. At first he was aware only of confusion, of his mother and father greeting and being greeted, himself being handled, hugged and patted, and told how much he had grown. The wind blew the smoke from the fire across the clearing into his eyes and nose. He could not see over the backs of the people in front of him. The sounds of laughing and cursing and wrath and something else rolled in waves from the front of the mob to the back. Those in front expressed their delight at what they saw, and this delight rolled backward, wave upon wave, across the clearing, more acrid than the smoke. His father reached down suddenly and sat Jesse on his shoulders. Now he saw the fire of twigs and boxes piled high, flames made pale orange and yellow and thin as a veil under the steadier light of the sun, gray-blue smoke rolled upward and poured over their heads. Beyond the shifting curtain of fire and smoke, he made out first only a length of gleaming chain attached to a great limb of the tree. Then he saw that this chain bound two black hands together at the wrist, dirty yellow palm facing dirty yellow palm. The smoke poured up. The hands dropped out of sight. A cry went up from the crowd. Then the hands slowly came into view again, pulled upward by the chain. This time he saw the kinky, sweating, bloody head. He had never before seen a head with so much hair on it, hair so black and so tangled that it seemed like another jungle. The head was hanging. He saw the forehead, flat and high, with a kind of arrow of hair in the center, like he had, like his father had. They called it a widow's peak. And the mangled eyebrows, the wide nose, the closed eyes, and the glinting eyelashes, and the hanging lips, all streaming with blood and sweat. His hands were straight above his head. All his weight pulled downward from his hands, and he was a big man, a bigger man than his father, and black as an African jungle cat, and naked. Jesse pulled upward. His father's hands held him firmly by the ankles. He wanted to say something. He did not know what, but nothing he said could have been heard, for now the crowd roared again, as a man stepped forward and put more wood on the fire. The flames leapt up. He thought he heard the hanging man scream, but he was not sure. Sweat was pouring from the hair in his armpits, poured down his sides, over his chest, into his navel and his groin. He was lowered again. He was raised again. Now Jesse knew that he heard him scream. The head went back, the mouth wide open, blood bubbling from the mouth. The veins of the neck jumped out. Jesse clung to his father's neck in terror as the cry rolled over the crowd. The cry of all the people rose to answer the dying man's cry. He wanted death to come quickly. They wanted to make death wait. And it was they who held death now on a leash which they lengthened little by little. What did he do? Jesse wondered. What did the man do? What did he do? But he could not ask his father. He was seated on his father's shoulders but his father was far away. There were two older men, friends of his father's, raising and lowering the chain. Everyone indiscriminately seemed to be responsible for the fire. There was no hair left on the nigger's privates, and the eyes now were wide open, as white as the eyes of a clown or a doll. The smoke now carried a terrible odor across the clearing, the odor of something burning, which was both sweet and rotten. He turned his head a little and saw the field of faces. He watched his mother's face. Her eyes were very bright, 
Her mouth was open. She was more beautiful than he had ever seen her, and more strange. He began to feel a joy he had never felt before. He watched the hanging, gleaming body, the most beautiful and terrible object he had ever seen till then. One of his father's friends reached up, and in his hands he held a knife, and Jesse wished that he had been that man. It was a long, bright knife, and the sun seemed to catch it, to play with it, to caress it. It was brighter than the fire, and a wave of laughter swept the crowd. Jesse felt his father's hands on his ankles slip and tighten. The man with the knife walked toward the crowd, smiling slightly, as though this were a signal. Silence fell. He heard his mother cough. Then the man with the knife walked up to the hanging body. He turned and smiled again. Now there was a silence all over the field. The hanging head looked up. It seemed fully conscious now, as though the fire had burned out terror and pain. The man with the knife took the nigger's privates in his hand, one hand, still smiling as though he were weighing them. In the cradle of the one white hand, the nigger's privates seemed as remote as meat being weighed on the scales, but seemed heavier too, much heavier, and Jesse felt his scrotum tighten, and huge, huge, much bigger than his father's, flaccid, hairless, the largest thing he had ever seen till then, and the blackest. The white hand stretched them, cradled them, caressed them. Then the dying man's eyes looked straight into Jesse's eyes. It could not have been as long as a second, but it seemed longer than a year. Then Jesse screamed, and the crowd screamed as the knife flashed, first up, then down, cutting the dreadful thing away, and the blood came roaring down. Then the crowd rushed forward, tearing at the body with their hands, with knives, with rocks, with stones, howling and cursing. Jesse's head of its own weight fell downward toward his father's head. Someone stepped forward and drenched the body with kerosene. Where the man had been, a great sheet of flame appeared. Jesse's father lowered him to the ground. Well, I told you, said his father. You wasn't never going to forget this picnic. His father's face was full of sweat. His eyes were very peaceful. At that moment, Jesse loved his father more than he had ever loved him. He felt that his father had carried him through a mighty test, had revealed to him a great secret, which would be the key to his life forever. I reckon, he said, I reckon. Jesse's father took him by the hand, and with his mother a little behind them, talking and laughing with the other women, they walked through the crowd across the clearing. The black body was on the ground. The chain which had held it was being rolled up by one of his father's friends. Whatever the fire had left undone, the hands and the knives and the stones of the people had accomplished. The head was caved in, one eye was torn out, one ear was hanging. But one had to look carefully to realize this, for it was, now, merely, a black charred object on the black charred ground. He lay spread-eagled with what had been a wound between what had been his legs. They going to leave him there, then? Jesse whispered. Yeah, said his father. They'll come and get him by and by. I reckon we better get over there and get some of that food before it's all gone. I reckon, he muttered down to himself. I reckon. Grace stirred and touched him on the thigh. The moonlight covered her like glory. Something bubbled up in him. His nature again returned to him. 
He thought of the boy in the cell. He thought of the man in the fire. He thought of the knife and grabbed himself and stroked himself, and a terrible sound, something between a high laugh and a howl, came out of him and dragged his sleeping wife up on one elbow. She stared at him in a moonlight which had now grown cold as ice. He thought of the morning and grabbed her, laughing and crying, crying and laughing, and he whispered as he stroked her, as he took her, Come on, sugar. I'm going to do you like a nigger, just like a nigger. Come on, sugar, and love me just like you'd love a nigger. He thought of the morning as he labored, and she moaned. Thought of morning as he labored harder than he ever had before. And before his labors had ended, he heard the first cock crow, and the dogs begin to bark, and the sound of tires on the gravel road. And if I never get well, Okay, there we go. Wow. What a story. James Baldwin. Oh, man. So good. So deep. It's like a surgeon. He's like a surgeon in a in a mash unit. He's got the patient on the table, and he's doing what he can to keep the guy alive. Meatball surgery on the American soul. My thanks to all my emailers and commenters today. That was fun. I always like running through the inbox. We'll be back soon with some Alice Monroe. Speaking of nice, Canadian nice. That's up there with Wisconsin nice people. <laughs> might, might be even above us. Hmm. Trumped in the arena of niceness. But he, this is Alice Monroe talking about a murder and how it affects a town afterwards. Alice Monroe, a beautiful short story, a long one. More of a novella. We're going to take it in three parts. We'll talk about each part separately. And Henry David Thoreau, maybe we should do him first, just to give ourselves a break from the short stories for a little bit. Run back to the 19th century to see he was really an astonishing guy, you know? He manufactured pencils. Did you know that? (laughs) And he, oh. Oh, yeah, he changed the course of the world, too. In addition to manufacturing pencils. Some might say a pencil factory is enough. Not Henry David. He said I should probably change the world too. Actually use one of these pencils. Write down some ideas. Change the world. Just in case the pencil thing doesn't work out. Speaking of things that haven't worked out, I'm Jack Wilson. Oh, man. Guy in the ditch with the towel over his head. It's probably been a year since we've had that guy in here, right? A couple years maybe. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.